Hey there, it's Dr. Nazanin Mo'oli, and I want to chat with you about a key ingredient for a fabulous date night, feeling sexy. And come on, let's be real. What you wear plays a big part in how you rock that confidence. That's why I'm thrilled to introduce you to Quince. Quince brings you premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts starting at just $30, along with washable silk tops, 40-carat gold jewelry, and more. And guess what? All of their goodies are priced 50 to 80% lower than similar brands. By teaming up directly with top factories, Quince skipped the middleman and hands us the saving. Plus, they stick to factories with safe, ethical practices and top-notch fabrics and finishes. How awesome is that? Picking from Quince's website was tough because they have a ton of fabulous choices. I ended up going for their 100% washable silk sleep dress in champagne. And let me tell you, my husband was floored. He's convinced whoever rocks this is in for a blast. I'm going to record some content on that dress so you can see how fabulous is that dress. Elevate your date night style with Quince. Pop over to quince.com slash sexology for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sexology to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sexology. Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Welcome to episode five of Sexology Podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with us today, and I hope you had a fantastic week. Unfortunately, I had a very tough week because of the immigration ban in the United States. Although it didn't impact me at the personal level, working with many immigrants and refugees, it was heartbreaking to see what was going on at airports. I attended a protest in Los Angeles County International Airport, and it was fascinating to see that hundreds and hundreds of Immigrants and Caucasians were protesting against these bans. And it was very empowering to see that how people were united against this new immigration law. I hope wherever you are, you took some time to take care of yourself. I know I had to take a few days off to process my emotions. Our topic today is understanding gender identity and sexual orientation. My guest is Dr. Abby Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman is a clinical psychologist and transaffirmative therapist with specialized training and experience in working with clients who are questioning their gender identity. In our conversation, we talked about the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. We discussed some misconceptions around transgender women and men. And we explored some of the challenges with use of language and pronouns when working with this population. I learned a lot from Dr. Wiseman, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. 
Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Abby Wiseman. Hi, our guest today is Dr. Abby Wiseman. Dr. Wiseman is a feminist psychologist with specialized training and experiences in working with clients who are questioning their gender identity and or identify as a person of trans experience or history. Dr. Wiseman, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this. It's my pleasure and please call me Abby. Okay, great. Thank you, Abby. This is an area that many people don't fully understand. So let us start with learning a little bit more about you and your practice. Okay. Well, I am very blessed to be uh, practicing out of San Diego, California. Let's see. I work with people who identify as transgender and those who love them, as well as um, on any sort of issues related to people's sexuality or their gender identity. What an important work because I feel that there aren't many therapists that have enough experience and training to do that work. So I think that's excellent. That's one of your area of expertise. So okay. one of the questions that I often get from people is just they want to know what is the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity? Okay. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it is one that I also get a lot because there's an assumption that they're the same. And so even knowing that they're different is fabulous. Got to support that. So in my book, the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity is that sexual orientation is someone's interest in someone else. So their romantic, affectional, sexual excitement, thrill in being with another person. Um, and they could be either of a similar gender, of a different gender, or um, somewhere in between and among. So they could be lesbian, gay, bisexual. Um, people also use the term queer. Um, and then gender identity has to do with how someone identifies their own gender. So I always hate to define a term using the same term in a definition. So suffice to say, when I think about gender, I often think of the sex that is assigned by the doctor at birth. Um, when the doctor comes on in after a woman has given birth and they say, it's a boy or it's a girl, that's someone's sex. And then the gender is how they identify it themselves. Okay, so one's internal sense of self would be the gender identity. Is that correct? Exactly. Okay, Yay. okay, perfect. And one thing that I sometimes find it confusing, and I know I hear that from other people, is that, for example, there was a study that some people, some this specific study was about men who had sex with other men, but they didn't identify as gay or bisexual. So uh, have you had experience with this population? And uh, what's your thoughts about that? Um, I think it. I have had experience with that population. I think there are many populations that their behavior might not match their identity, um, that someone's identity is very personal and it could be very linked to politics and to situation. And so often when working with Black men, for instance, I'm might be thinking about if this person identifies as gay, which can have a very, I don't know, can feel very white sometimes, 
or if they're um, on the down low and they're, let's say, in a relationship with a woman and then also having sex with men um, outside of their relationship. Absolutely. And I think you clarified that very uh, nicely because of the politics of associated with these things. I think there are some complications and there's yes. a different pre- presentations because I know in this study, I mean, there was some studies like looking into like people inmates and in hospitals and things of that nature. But this specific study, they looked into a suburban like Caucasian male and also bikers. So different uh, <laughs> subpopulations. So that was interesting to see. Fabulous. Yeah, I always ask a client how they identify themselves. And that would work because there are a lot of people that identify as gay, and they could be of a different gender, they could be women, and see themselves as gay, or they could identify in a whole different way. So I'm always, you know, checking with the client first to use their languaging. Absolutely. I think that is very important to check in with them about what do they identify with. Because I think like making assumptions on your own sometimes that's absolutely not a way to go. Yeah. The other, but the other part of it is sometimes I work with teens and they're coming in because they want to explore and they don't know. And how do you usually go to that route with them? I love working with teens. They're fabulous. It depends on the teen and it depends on the comfort with the parents. But often I'll bring a teen in and talk with them first, like meet with them first and find out their terms. And so um, in my intake paperwork, I have a teen, like a, a teen form where I ask them, what is your gender identity? And then I give some examples in parentheses. And then what is your sexual orientation? And I give some examples because I want to let them know that it's okay and that they can flip flop around and having even more than one gender is fine. Having lots of thoughts of their sexual orientation is fine. But yeah, I often let them know I'm using your language, whatever makes you feel safe and whatever, um, whatever terms make you feel the most you are the terms I'll use. And then I notice with teens, sometimes they'll tell me the terms that they feel comfy with me using, but not ever, but they have a discrepancy between the terms that they want me to use with them and the terms that they want me to use with their parents. Wow. <laughs> That's so it's a scary. lot of remembering. Right. Yeah. right. I would totally mix, I would mix that up. <laughs> I'm not good with like kind of memorizing those things. But as you say, it's very important to acknowledge those things and checking in with them about what's, what do they prefer? Yes. And I actually, I would um, caution you against the language of prefer. Um, not because, well, I mean, I hear it in the most like loving, kind way. Sometimes people get grumpy because it's this idea that if I prefer something, like um, if I prefer to have tea with honey versus sugar, that it's not as big of a deal. Um, So somehow using the languaging around this is how you identify or this is what makes you happy seems to almost give it more weight and more power. I love that. And using now I'm reflecting back the language of preference. I'm thinking there's a like necessarily a choice and like, you know, we just mm-hmm. like wouldn't kind of take it away from their experience of like how real is that? Right. And also it gives it more power. Yes, exactly what you said. Perfect. Thank you. So the other question I have is what does it mean to have a gender that's not male or female? Well, I think there's many varieties out there. I often quote Kate Bornstein, um, who said that there are as many genders as there are stars in the sky. And so uh, they have this idea that 
it's not a dichotomy that you don't have to just be male or female. You can be in and amongst. You can identify as gender queer. You can identify as agender. As um, you can identify as more than one gender. You can. There's lots of options out there, and so I often. That's why in my intake form I have gender in a blank because I want people to be as creative as they need to be to talk about themselves. And I think that's very important. And I feel with gender identity and psychology of gender identity, the more you learn, there are more areas to kind of explore and understand. So that's fantastic that we have this conversation. And it seems like you're an expert in this area. So how did you get interested? And uh, where did you get your training around that? Thank you. Such an honor to be called an expert. Well, in many places, certainly my own experience as identifying as a lesbian made me want to know everything there is about lesbians. And um, when I was in, when I was getting my Bachelor of Arts in sociology, I found I could study abroad and study sexuality. And I thought that was the coolest thing since sliced bread. So off I went to Amsterdam, the Netherlands to study at the School for International Training. And it just opened up a world of options and possibilities. Fantastic. And uh, so it seems like you work with this population and with different variety. In your experiences, when would someone first notice that they're, they're like, yeah. they're like you know, we have the concepts of cis and trans and the differences around how they identify and their uh, genitalia and things of that nature? Well, it depends on the person, which I don't know about you, but as a psychologist, I always told myself, I am not going to give that answer. <laughs> I am not going to say it depends on the person because that's just so annoying to hear, but I find myself giving it all the time. Um, I can say, listen to your kid, which is one of my blog posts around how important it is to notice what your kids are saying because gender identity itself can actually be discovered at the ripe old age of two and a half. Interesting. So, I've certainly had parents come to me when their kids were that young or slightly older to ask, oh my gosh, is this what's going on? And at that point, I would encourage them to just, you know, watch the kid, look for patterns, follow the kid's lead. And what can be early. Yeah. And it's, I can imagine like, you know, for younger children, it's a blessing that they realize that about like understand about their gender identity and if I know sometimes when they are identified with gender minorities mm -hmm. they are subject to bullying and lots of stigma and things around that and how can parents support their kid around those issues? I think it's a great question that you ask and it's a really big one. I think that um, supporting your kid for me means listening to your kid, even if they don't say the things that you want them to, um, <laughs> and really hearing them where the kid is at. Um, I encourage parents to get their own support and their own education, like going to PFLAG meetings around them, um, where they can learn about different identities, different gender identities, as well as different sexual orientations. And then in terms of bullying, I really, really, really underline little stars by it love the work that glisten has done um, around school bullying um, where they have different programs um, that they've worked with different schools on and they'll have what I love about them is that they'll have like a list in California of all the students rights oh fantastic and then they'll, yeah they'll go into the school and help educate 
the students on what are your rights, what are the ways that we can advocate for you, and then to know that a parent is right there on their side is wonderful. That is what important. That's that is a very important resource. I'll make sure that I include that uh, in the show notes. And Please. I I live and practice in California as well. And even oh. in the modern area, like you know, it's like people are more open minded and school district around like we would think in California, but still mm-hmm. similar kind of experience as I experienced. Like I, I, my clients experience lots of bullying kind of issues at school and there are lots of struggles very much so and I I, my heart hurts for your clients my clients friends colleagues who have to experience so much and they're lucky to have uh, you to advocate for them I, I think the real thing I would say for parents is to get their own support so that they don't have to rely on their kids to educate them Absolutely. I think that is very important. The other question I have is about transgender. What are some of the misconceptions that you hear that people have around transgender women and men? Um, I think the main misconception is around that they're not this concept of real man or real woman. And I think as long as someone identifies as a woman or as a man, to me, they're as real as they can be. And that's a really big deal to be an authentic person, to really figure out who you are. It's such a wonderful thing to see someone come to terms with who they are. um, And yet there can be such a fear that they don't look a certain way that makes them not, not the right way, as if a woman or a man can only look a certain way. Absolutely. It can be very challenging. But it, as you said, like it's a journey that can increase one's understanding of themselves and their environment. So I, I often see that it, sometimes it adds depth to one's personality when they realize about who they are truly. Yeah, very much so. And I, I think I also think about, you know, what, how difficult it can be to go through life identifying with a gender that you weren't assigned as at birth. I mean, there's the whole bathroom calamities where in California, there's a little bit more lightness around um, giving different bathroom options for people. Um, But it still can be very uncomfortable to figure out where to go, especially in spaces that are gendered. Like I'm Jewish and um, there are only some synagogues that I attend but I'm very, I'm always very cautious of where do the women go and where do the men go? And how do I know where to go? Like, how was I taught where to go? And then what if there was someone else whose gender might not look as clear cut as mine supposedly does? How would, how would they feel comfortable? What clues would help them feel safe and um, not scared? So... Yes. And I think, as you said, that like these daily decisions that people make can be very challenging when you're not fitting in in this like cookie cutter, male and female kind of like uh, cis identifying kind of thing. So that's very important. Yes, absolutely. One area that I always had question, do you do the uh, evaluation for the surgeries and people who are interested into uh, about like getting the surgeries? Yes, I definitely do. Although it makes me sad that I have to, you know, in Southern California, any person who was identified at birth as female and still identifies as female, any cisgendered female can go and get a breast job or can get a reduction without Mm -hmm. any sort of letter writing. But once I have someone who was assigned male at birth, 
and wants to transition and wants to get breast implants, then there's a whole big thing. Absolutely. I didn't think about it that day, but that is so true. It's like, I, I just, or a nose job versus face feminization surgery. I mean, I'm used to my culture of like Jewish women where not for everyone granted, but the stereotype was around on your 16th birthday, you would get a nose job if you were white and of a certain class. And yet here to get someone to um, have facial feminization surgery, they would need a letter from their psychologist letting them know that, letting the doctor know that somehow they're okay enough. Absolutely. And I did my postdoc at a place that was more medical setting and the barriers okay. for people for getting the uh, like surgery was very challenging. It was a month of therapy and evaluation and going back and forth. Oh. So I can understand that, as you said, it, there are some, apparently there are some mo more barriers than it needs to be. Yes, I very much, very strongly, you know, with wild cheering, agree that it really doesn't need to have as many barriers as there are. And I think depending on the state you're, you can, you are in, um, might have different recommendations. And depending on how comfortable the medical doctor feels about performing whatever surgery it is or whatever experience they have might determine um, how quickly the process can go. But as you probably know, you know, if you need hormones or you want hormones in your life, you do not need a letter from a psychologist or a therapist at all. And so often I get calls that are like, oh, will you write me a letter? And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course, for what? You know, what do you need it for? And they're like, oh, I just need hormones. I'm like, no, 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 I will give you the names of clinics. Like, you just go and take care of yourself. That is it's fantastic okay. that you're so passionate about this job that you're constantly educating people. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes, I feel like I'm learning myself all the time. I think um, spending a lot of, in grad school, I was up in the Bay Area. And so for us, we could just send people next door oh. to go to the Tom Waddell Clinic. And it was considered harm reduction to have people get hormones that were prescribed by a doctor um, or, or medical care so that they didn't have to go find them on the street and get unregulated hormones. And so then to come to Southern California where it's like, okay, there are two clinics you can go to and we can take care of you there or let's find a doctor that works with your plan. Like it's a lot more work even for hormones that I'm used to just being like, go, go. <laughs> so I find that... Um, that's tricky. And then I find that there are some clinicians that won't write letters for their clients. And that hurts my heart too. Like they kind of like because of their own biases or what would be the reason like that usually that you see that? I think it depends on the clinician, I would say. Um, I would like to think they all have good intentions, but I'm not really sure if that's true. Maybe they just don't feel like they can, like they need additional special training, which you know, I'm happy to provide or happy to send them to where I got trained or that they feel like it's mutilation. And so they just have really negative feelings about medical interventions that they're not, they're not like sharing with their potential client while they're in the phase of, are you the right therapist for me? I see a lot of people that um, get stuck working with a therapist who is like just six more sessions just see me another time and then we'll talk about it. But they don't necessarily just write the letter. They'll make them wait. And I just think that's cruel it sounds and expensive. Like it. Absolutely. I, I know therapy is, it is an investment. And, you know, I feel with 
kind of evaluations to that. I think you need to mm-hmm. have the training, but if you don't have the training, I mean, it's not going to be have anything going to change in one session or two right. sessions. So that would be like good time to refer out. So I can understand the frustration. I guess this is where we might differ. Like I, so I'm torn. On one hand, I love seeing people. So yes, send your people to me. On the other hand, I find it could be really traumatic for someone to work with their provider, finally feel safe and comfortable enough to share this part of them, you know, share a different gender identity or even a different sexual orientation, and then have the provider be like, oh, no, I can't do this. This is too much. <laughs> you have passed some threshold, you know? You, I can't do this anymore. Let me refer you out. And I, I feel like that's sort of a way of saying like, you're too much for me. Absolutely. I can see that you were thinking like, you know, m- might all feel kind of like, you know, I trusted you and you didn't, you yeah. couldn't like, you can take it or also like kind of a experience like some people might experience a rejection. Yes. My thought process on that was I remember the training that we had at the hospital and it was like, they were talking about the evaluation and it was just so many different steps, different things were involved. So I felt like, you know, this is like, if I ever needed to write a letter, I should be familiar with like these 20 assessments and mm-hmm. had experience and all those kind of things. So I think uh-huh. fear of not being competent necessarily in that evaluation might be something that like, you know, would yeah hold me back. But I can totally understand that from client's perspective especially around the sensitive topics such as and delicate topic around like trusting you and uh, discussing your gender identity it can be very invalidating if I say oh no I cannot do that I can deal with depression anxiety like all trauma (laughs) but this is something different right exactly I think that's the fear and I would say for me I think I have been very, as I said, very lucky to be trained by wonderful practitioners um, throughout my training. And at the end of the day, there's this idea that I don't believe that I can pick for this person what's right for them. And so it's not actually that intense of an intake. It's like an intake. It just sometimes it takes me a little longer to type it up. (laughs) I'm not as speedy. Um, so I try to do it within a, maybe two sessions. And then if it's more complicated, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but as long as I have access to I don't know, speak to the other doctors that are working with them or check in with them about their aftercare strategy, it's, it's okay. And I am really grateful to have a lot of people I can consult with mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm doing right by them. But I will say when I first got licensed, which granted has been like a year ago, I had people who scared the bejeebies out of me. I don't know if that's an appropriate <laughs> term. They scared me. They were like, you are going to lose your license if you do any sort of assessment and you haven't seen the person at least six times. Oh, wow. You are going to lose your license if, you don't, if you're not in therapy with them for at least a year. I'm like, what? This doesn't seem right. This doesn't fit with my norms, you know? It's a population that often doesn't have a lot of money. So I'm going to make them pay for a year of treatment Mm -hmm. Um, when they don't even want it. They just want to get the surgery that would make them feel the best. That feels wrong. I can totally understand that. And I I love how you're advocating for more patient and kind of encouraging people to follow the leads of what patient wants. And I think that is very important. I agree. Um, I will also say I definitely utilize the WPATH standards of care. We're up to standards of care Mm -hmm. seven. Um, and then the ICATH, which local colleagues let me know about, which is more about 
oh, I can't think of the word exactly, but it's more about supporting the people making the decision for themselves that they need this kind of care and then advocating for themselves and asking for therapists to help them in certain avenues to get them access. So I prefer to go that method, but if a doctor or physician um, or surgeon won't won't go that direction, then I will follow up and use the WPAS standards of care. That's wonderful. It seems like you have different options and like you have different training so you can like kind of pursue them based on the need of the client, which is yes. great. One question that I have is there about like what pronoun to use with someone who they don't like you can what sometimes I like I can be honest with you that people Please. coming in and I feel like I don't know what would be a right pronoun and like English being my second language sometimes I by nature confuse the pronoun <laughs> so right how, how would you know what what pronoun do you use for your patient that are transgender or like what what are people's preferences are I will say, taking from my dissertation, which focused on the experiences of people identify as transgender and Jewish, I would say most of the people said this, um, which is ask. Okay. Ask with kindness and respect, but ask. And there are, I feel it's a, a language that people need to kind of master because there are a number of different variations. And so if someone want to kind of increase their understanding about the language they need to use and the terminology that are respectful to, so you say you think it's the best way to ask the people, obviously, is there any other research around that or any books that people can read to kind of increase their understanding of people of like different gender identity and sexual preferences? Yes. <laughs> to give you a really simple answer, yes. I do want to say a quick caveat. And the last point was, I will say most people, if you ask, like, you know, what pronouns do you, makes you happy is how I usually ask when I'm meeting with someone. There will be most likely one or two people who will say what you can't tell mm -hmm. and will get grumbly about it. And that's their right. That's their identity stage. That's where they're at. And to follow up, I usually say, you know, I just want to make sure I don't want to assume anything. And that usually helps kind of regroup everyone together a little bit that you're coming from a state of, I don't want to assume not I'm curious, because I want to ask you all these invasive questions. And that helps them. Absolutely. I think it's important to kind of, as you said, ask people because when you make I mean, there was one occasion I remember that I didn't ask and assume and that was like, when the person like corrected me, which they had all the right to do that, I'm glad mm -hmm. they did. But then I was just kind of like, I felt shame. But mm -hmm. again, I wanted to make sure that like, then from then on, I realized that I always ask because I want make, to make my clients comfortable. Yeah, I think it's awesome that you ask. I, I have made so many fumbles and blunders. Like I am not very, I feel like for as much learning as I've done, I always feel like I make some blunder along the way. And who knows, maybe it'll come become some moment where you connect with the client. Remember that time I used the wrong pronoun? Well, thank you so much for correcting me. Absolutely. I feel like I have a better handle. I also tend to ask clients who are in the middle of their kind of figuring out who they are, what pronouns make them happy. And I ask them most sessions. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, that is so neat. So you're checking with them every time, kind of like what's yeah. their perfect, what's... <laughs> See, we're both doing it. <laughs> no, but I love that, that. I'll keep that in mind. So what they want to get called. And so that's wonderful. What they want to get called. And then like, do you have a name that you've been thinking about? Because that can be really hard. 
I don't know, figuring out my own name, my nickname was hard enough to figure out Abby and not Abigail, not Gail. Then to create a whole another name for yourself is a really tough thing to do. So sometimes I'll just check in and say, you know, I have to write these notes. As you know, it's my legal responsibility. What pronoun would you like me to use in these notes? I love that. And that can be very empowering. Yes, I think so. And then with their, your parents, let's say if it's a teen, what pronoun would you like me to use with them? Okay. And I usually ask, is there anything you'd like me to advocate with your parents around? Oh, I'm sure they love that. (laughs) (laughs) I say, I can't get you dessert for dinner, you know? (laughs) Like, I try, but I'm just not that cool. Um, That is wonderful. It shows that it's clear, Abby, that you're very passionate about this population and you're advocating for them, which is wonderful to see, especially in this age and time with all the discrimination and all the struggles that people of sexual minority experiences. So if our audience wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way to contact you? I think the best way would be, I have many best ways. And they're welcome to try me on my website. I have a bunch of links there to contact me. And it's uh, www.doctorabi.com. Or they can call me at 619-403. Five five seven eight, or again, they can email me at info at drabby.com. Perfect. I'll make sure that I include those information in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It was a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for sharing your expertise and knowledge with our listeners. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. What an honor. Thank you. I hope you found our conversation helpful. Like many of you, I didn't grow up talking about these issues. And I often find it very challenging to learn and expand my knowledge in this area beyond what I learned at graduate schools and books. And I really appreciate Dr. Wiseman's openness and kindness. So we would be able to learn more about this topic. Please, if you have any questions, feel free to contact her directly. At the end, I want to take a moment and thank those of you who wrote honest review for this show in iTunes. If you have a moment, I really appreciate if you go ahead and write us a review. I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexology.com sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.